Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Let me take this moment to again express our gratitude for this season's theme song, Social, generously lent to us by Mass Giorgini and Squirt Gun. A few of you 80s babies have rightly identified it as the intro credits theme to Kevin Smith's Mallrats. Second suitor. If we were making whoopee... What's whoopee? Um... Oh, well, if we were, uh... If we were being intimate... What, like fucking? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Like Brody, Mark Twain was inclined to be amused, frustrated, and even enraged by the euphemisms, decorums, and pruderies erected around sex. He was not simply baffled by the comic hypocrisy of sex discourse. He recognized that it created discriminatory double standards for women and excuses for arbitrary censorship and control in the culture industry. Here at Quarry Farm in 1876, he composed and self-published a pornographic farce in mock Elizabethan prose, which featured several of the most esteemed literary figures in the British canon, farting and fucking their way through the English gentry. At one point, Francis Bacon and Ben Jonson argue at length about the proper spelling of bollocks, until the Queen herself interrupts them to tell the Countess of Granby, Let ye spelling be, you shall enjoy the beating of them on your buttocks just the same. You get the gist. In her introduction to the Oxford edition of Twain's 1601, the feminist critic and erotic novelist Erica Jung writes, After many brave battles for the freedom to publish, we find that the enemies of freedom have multiplied. All writing comes from excessive self-judgment, the internalized voice of the critical parent telling the author's imagination that it is a dirty little boy or girl. This is why the pornographic spirit is always related to unhampered creativity. This, the third episode of our Social Problems series, inspired by a year of chaos in social media, considers the role which sex discourse, moral panic, prudish misogyny, and coercion in the guise of protection play in the platform economy. For this purpose, I turn to a scholar at the vanguard of surveillance kleptocracy, Olivia Snow. She is a writer, professor, and dominatrix, who is currently a Tech Impact Research Fellow at UCLA's Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Before that, she was a Research Fellow at NYU's AI Now Institute. Our conversation today is provoked, at least in part, by two recent essays she published with Wired about the muskification of Twitter. For a complete bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash 
are you familiar with my villain origin story? Only vaguely. I've seen entire months-long depictions of how I have stalked someone I've never heard of. Just like these little goofballs. But the initial issue was back in 2019. I hadn't been doing sex work for about five years. I was out of grad school adjuncting. I didn't get a job for the summer or I didn't get any classes. And I was like, shit, what am I going to do? I don't know. Wound up back in the dungeon again because, you know, I needed to still pay my bills. I think I got back into the dungeon like literally the same week I did my last major conference <laughs> before COVID. You know, and I was working on getting shit ready for the job market in the fall. And this one dissertation committee member of mine, she and I were really tight. And she's like, hey, so what are, what are you doing for work this summer? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm working. And she was like, okay, like where at? And I was like, my job. <laughs> and she's like, no, bitch, where are you working? So I told her I was doing sex work. And she freaked the fuck out i was like how can i make whorephobia work for me like don't worry i'm doming i'm not an escort like that didn't help when i asked her if she would update my letter of recommendation for the new application cycle i was like just change the date from 2018 to 2019 instead she went into interfolio in the middle of the night and withdrew all of my letters of rec like five years worth and didn't tell me. So I didn't discover this little nugget of information until like late September. I was like checking something on Interfolio and I, I went to select letters and I was like, where the fuck? Oh, so I mean, that was just a silly decision to make, especially after she had spent like a decade training me. And also upon discovering the information that I'm a professional sadist, like, why would you do that? So I wrote about it in the Chronicle, which ended up going viral. I anticipated that that was going to give me a much larger profile with a lot of trained researchers. I understood like some of the weird shit that people could piece together to find a person. I knew if you were to take, say, my research interests and my city and my ethnicity all together, then it would be very easy to figure out who I was. And I also know that and I've always really known since I started doing sex work that people's brains just break with sex. People don't know how to deal with us. People just go haywire. And, you know, exactly what I predicted did end up happening. I got an email. This was sometime in 2020 by a dude who was like, yeah, so I spent over 50 hours comparing weather patterns in major U.S. cities until I could pinpoint where you were, at which point I made a biometric list of all the adjuncts in New York City. And then I went from there. So... <laughs> Having this experience of never revealing my time zone, never revealing my exact age, never revealing where I went to school, where I went to college, where I went to grad school, where I teach, where I used to teach, none of it. I just limited my background to PhD in the humanities. I suspected the weather thing too, like <laughs> before this happened and even did try to hide that I was taking the subway because New York's the only American city with one, like a Chicago maybe. Having to have that in the back of your mind and I mean, it does become second nature at a point, but having to consistently be like, no, I can't tell you my area code. No, I can't give you my number because it has my area code in it. And then you'll know I grew up in this place. And then like cybersecurity, I guess, has always not really been a research interest, but just like a practice mm -hmm. I've had to maintain. And then speaking of the subway, I was on my on the train home after work and I'm scrolling through Facebook and I saw a few of my, my dungeon coworkers on the people you may know under their government names. Interesting. Of course, our 
devices were in close physical proximity. I was going to say we were using the same Wi-Fi network, but that motherfucker never paid the Wi-Fi bill. So no, we weren't, you know, we were spending eight hours a day, like within 12 feet of each other. We likely shared clients. So of course, Facebook would be like, hey, you know this person, because in fact I did. But realizing like, oh, Facebook is doxing sex workers right now. And it it doesn't even, you know, like there's some forms of surveillance that are more sinister or insidious, but this is just some dipshit at Facebook didn't consider how this could be weaponized. So then once the pandemic hit, things really accelerated. I'm not sure if that's just like coincidental, but you know, I started experiencing financial deplatforming and I was confused about it because I wasn't using my Venmo or my Cash App or anything for sex work. So I was like, how do they even, and I realized at some point like, oh, cause I have like mistress as a name on some of these things. But you know, at that point I had also started talking with older sex workers, older doms and, you know, learning that this has been happening for such a long time and that there's such a history here that a lot of people don't hear. Side note, have you heard of Hacking Hustling? Uh-uh. So they're this collective of sex workers and researchers, they're independent who look at surveillance and how tech is weaponized against us and sex work specifically. So they were really getting off the ground in 2019 as well, which was also when I showed up. And you know, I had done sex work for, God, it's been almost like 20 years now off and on, but I hadn't had it as my primary source of income until very recently. So I didn't experience a lot of things that others had years before me. Like if you're depositing or withdrawing too much money or too many large bills or an ATM in a certain neighborhood or whatever, then like your bank account might have just gotten closed back in the 90s. As I had come from a humanities background, I and as I had had this nonsense with my letters of rec happen with my former mentor, and then also as all this other nonsense is happening, I found myself in the crosshairs of medieval Twitter. I couldn't really take that work seriously anymore. Who gives a shit? Like, it doesn't matter. Uh, like, people are dying, you know? I, in some ways, I kind of got, like, I don't want to say forced or, like, shoehorned or anything, but it was kind of a natural transition. It happened alongside my kind of losing interest in my former field. To get this sort of background story, I think, is helpful for thinking about how we're going to need different types of intelligence, training, you know, disciplinary knowledge to address these sets of emerging and oftentimes seemingly contradictory crises, right? Right, It makes a great deal of sense that there is a personal and professional nexus (laughs) that leads down this relatively new strain of, of research. You bring up that that example, the really keen and demonstrative of the kind of paranoia that a lot of us are offhandedly joking about, right? That, oh, I met somebody and then they showed up as a Facebook recommendation, right? Right. Or if you're talking about like chairs and then you go on Instagram and you see right. the greatest chair you've ever seen in your life. Exactly, right? So the the idea that Amazon, that Facebook, that Apple are, you know, potentially listening to us, are tracking us, and that that data is then being used oftentimes in what seems like relatively innocuous, superficial way. Right. I mean, it's primarily used for advertising. 
Right. So uh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to get into. One of the ways in which Musk's takeover is, of Twitter has been narrated is that he's chasing off advertisers. And whenever that narrative is put out, it's this idea that, oh, you know, advertisers are 90% of the revenue. And I think when people hear that, what they think is, oh, they're paying for those promotional spots that I see on my feed. And that's, that's certainly true. They're paying for data. Yeah, but what you bring up is, I think, something that seems to be missing from a lot of that narrative around advertising. That actually, yes, they may be paying for those promotional spots. Sure, yeah. But in doing so, they are also getting an enormous amount of information about users. Exactly. And they are monetizing that information, not just on Twitter, right? But they are taking it back to their corporate offices and using it for demographic analysis, for other forms of advertising and promotion, so on and so forth. And that piece, I think, has, has remained somehow invisible in this story. If that kind of data fire sale is not being done for Fortune 500 companies as it was, under the previous regime. What is, it's not going to be just subscriptions. What is the revenue model that is the alternative to selling our information, selling users to Chevy, to Hulu? <laughs> as far as the advertisers go, I do think Twitter can continue to monetize user data. So I'm currently working on another article for Wired about Airbnb. Airbnb is notorious among sex workers for just booting us off at the drop of a hat. And there are a lot of theories as to why this may be. So if you use your credit card to purchase an advertisement on an adult listing site, and then you use the same credit card or not even the same credit card, but you know, then that's associated with your name, then Airbnb figures that out and boots you. So this has been happening for years. And then I think it was in 20. 20, it might've been 2021, but I think it was 2020. It was reported that Airbnb owned a patent for artificial intelligence designed explicitly to sniff out sex workers and people with like negative personality traits or character traits or something to develop a kind of like trustworthiness score. Psycho for morality. Yeah, which is like just terrifying. But, but, I mean, terrifying unless you'd been paying attention to sex workers, which very few people have been doing, <laughs> in which case, you know, this has been happening, at least reported since 2016. But recently, about a month ago, someone reached out to me on Twitter and was like, listen, my partner and I were trying to get away for Christmas and Airbnb banned both of us. I brought up my DoorDash account getting uh, suspended. And this was back in April. I said something like, well, you know, Airbnb, for instance, is notorious. And I think the New York Post reached out to Airbnb and Airbnb was like, no, of course not. We would never ban sex workers. So it was remarkable with this is that in the email that these two people got or the emails, the one said your account has been associated with escort services and commercial pornography. It just said straight up. This is why, which it doesn't usually do. This might have been the first time I've seen them actually give a reason. And I've had this like personal, I know, God, what's the last one I lost? I think it was Western Union shut down my account and they wouldn't tell me why. So they, they told the woman who is an escort, you know, because you're an escort. But then they told her partner, because you're closely associated with someone who isn't allowed to be on Airbnb. So to go back to this, like, trustworthiness score mm -hmm. what i suspect this data is getting used at least by airbnb probably others to create some kind of like social credit score mm -hmm. in a product that they can then they can either sell our data or they can sell the product itself which 
you know, right now is just Airbnb, but five years from now might be if you can rent an apartment or if you can get on an airplane. Airbnb specifically has also using like facial recognition to sniff out sex workers specifically before this. So, you know, there's a lot of different data sets. I don't think Musk is smart enough to even get anywhere near but the data alone is so valuable, even if advertisers aren't advertising and especially as, you know, security gets worse and they get more data because they're less secure, then that might be a kind of financial way out of this little pickle. Mm-hmm. When Musk took over, I think the two most common predictions were one, you know, there would be a period of upheaval and then Twitter would go back to being more or less what it has been for the last five or six years. And the other prediction was that he would make all these cuts, fire all these people, and the platform would basically break, right. it would descend into bankruptcy and obsolescence, right? But I think we probably agree that there is a third path here. And that is into a different kind of profit model, maybe one based upon desperation, maybe one based upon people starting to recognize that Musk is in many ways asleep at the wheel and has fired many of the people that know more about the platform than he does. And therefore, there are going to be all sorts of opportunities for scams, for you know, data harvesting, for hacking, yeah. while simultaneously Musk is trying to roll out half-assed, haphazard, rushed monetization. What do you see as the most pressing dangers associated with this transitional period? And then, like, what is there to be done? You, you mentioned earlier that you have, a, you know, sort of a, a lot of experience trying to protect yourself, protect your identity, protect your data, sometimes more successful than others. Is the only answer here to just get off Twitter? Is that even an answer? Well, I think we had to deal with some of this with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. So for your question, is there a point in leave? Like, is it possible to leave? I'd, mm-hmm. Is there any reason to? I No, they have that. Because I'm, I'm thinking of Facebook. I was debating between deactivation and deleting it. And I asked my friends who know better. And they're like, girl, they have a shadow profile of you anyway. It doesn't matter. You could have never been on Facebook. And they would know more about you than you know. It does not matter anymore. So I think leaving Twitter is, I mean, there's obviously a lot of ways I could get, you know, exponentially worse. I revoked a lot of the access that Twitter had to a lot of my, like my photos, for instance, because I'm like, I don't need all that shit getting leaked or, you know, contents of DMs or whatever. Like there are some issues specific to Twitter, but as far as leaving, no, I don't think it really matters. But um, when you said biggest risks, the EU is threatening Musk now. Apple has been threatening him and then Twitter could die a Tumblr death. As far as I know, there was never any major security breach from Tumblr. Twitter really is unique in its being used both for shitposting and for professionals mm-hmm. <laughs> alike. Whereas I think Tumblr is pretty solidly shitposting. Data protections and privacy laws as they are, at least in the EU. And then I want to say it's like Indonesia or maybe Singapore. Before Twitter updated one of their policies on non-consensual photos of any kind, I would like VPN my way over to Thailand to like report something that was illegal there, but not here. 
that's something that could likely keep Musk in check and therefore protect users. I think also is that the way he's doing this now, he is absolutely going to be in violation of FOSTA-SESTA, which has actually only been successfully used once in court against someone who ran, he ran like, it was similar to Backpage, like a listing site. But if Musk wants to start monetizing adult content, then he is going to need to get a ton of content moderators and enforce really robust content moderation systems, especially considering that porn is already allowed on Twitter as long as it's marked as such. So, you know, having to have human eyes look at every single piece of content that is getting uploaded. Like, I don't make content, adult content. I don't need to, so I don't. But clip sites have some of the most like restrictive content moderation policies especially like with various kinks. I'm thinking like with hypnosis, I, I wouldn't think that hypnosis would be banned, but there were so many chargebacks like, oh, I got hypnotized into sending her my money. That's been banned by most sites. I like to think, <laughs> and I don't have much trust in the US, but the EU, especially, he can only get away with so much before access to Twitter is going to be revoked by governments as it already is in many nations. <laughs> That's probably the best outcome at this point to protect users and also the platform. Do you see any hope of he ends up rolling it all back and it returns to some semblance of normal? Perhaps he, he decides to sell and it returns to a kind of status quo summer 2022 version of Twitter. Right. Could be what many people were predicting at the outset. Well, you know, and I was wondering that with some of the like hiring laws, you know, I know that engineers who got laid off got like three months severance. That's until what, October and the end of January <laughs> with Facebook laying off their ethics researchers. There's a lot of like talent to address these issues available like right now. And if Musk wasn't just stupid, he's also evil. But you know, the thing that gets me most about Twitter is that like, I've never worked at Twitter, but I have a lot of friends who have worked at Twitter and the workplace environment that they've described sounded idyllic for years. I had friends who had been working there for over a decade. It was just an excellent place to work. People were creating products that were actually reasons why Twitter, unlike Facebook, has not, as far as I know, enabled any genocides. Because people you know, took seriously the role that social media is playing and has played and will play and the responsibility that comes with that. On that topic, of the many unintended and unfortunate consequences to Musk's taking over Twitter, one is that that Facebook files investigation that the Wall Street Journal did last year that, as you said, drew attention to the complicity that Facebook had in genocide, to the widespread doxing, the revenge porn, the harassment. It was an incredible investigation that put Facebook in the crosshairs of government regulators. Which is where they belong. Where they definitely belong. And one of the unfortunate side effects of Musk's takeover is now Twitter has superseded Facebook and Twitter is a much smaller platform. Right. And for many years, a much better, safer, more secure, better run entity. Right. Well, and people are like, well, those engineers can find other jobs. I'm like, no, there's actually not a ton of human rights jobs for engineers. That's not a thing that you, you can't just be like, oh, I'll go work on Instagram. Like, no, you can't. Twitter was pretty singular in that respect. Yes, things have been supremely chaotic for the past month, but even since 
Musk made his announcement that he was going to buy Twitter, my secondhand knowledge of how the company culture was just decimated. There was, you know, an air of surveillance, an air of paranoia, which was, I guess, not really paranoia, considering they were being surveilled, pitting workers against each other in ways they hadn't been before. I doubt that Twitter would be able to attract back the talent that they've lost. Maybe they could, but it sounds like Musk just showed up and found his little Twitter orb and then just smashed it on the ground. And like, no one wants to come put those shards back together. You draw our attention to what I think is particularly interesting about this moment at Twitter specifically, which is the anticipation maybe already happening sort of two contradictory crises that on the one hand, we are sort of constantly being told, and Sarah Roberts talked about this on the first episode, that the content moderation team has been scaled back dramatically, if not eliminated entirely. Which is terrifying. Under the guise, as we've talked about in both of the previous episodes, of this kind of libertarian, free speech, anything goes mentality that Musk has been espousing since even before he took over the platform. While simultaneously, there is an increased anxiety, expectation, accusation that shadow banning is happening and that actual outright bans are enforced. And this, I certainly expect that you can talk about this specifically with uh, with sex workers. And one of the things that you bring up in your last article for Wired is that another kind of contradiction that on the one hand, sex workers are being surveilled and shadow banned and otherwise attacked on Twitter. On the other hand, adult content is part of Musk's business plan for making Twitter profitable. So there does seem to be a kind of contradiction in terms. We've had lots of instances just recently of people reporting that their accounts have been taken down, very open instances of right-wing provocateurs reaching out to Musk to have him remove accounts from supposed Antifa allies, et cetera. All of this is sort of playing out in public in some cases, in other times, private, right? And it does seem like there's a sort of simultaneity of contradictory crises, right? On the one hand, Twitter seems to be becoming a kind of free-for-all. On the other hand, there clearly is more targeted censorship than ever. On the one hand, Twitter seems to be leaning into itself as a platform for adult content. On the other hand, it seems to be targeting the accounts of sex workers. Right. I want to try to parse, how how do we deal with these sort of contradictory crises that are being narrated for us in real time since Musk took over? One issue, a lot of these teams work in silos. So teams developing adult content monetization aren't going to be interacting with teams working even in like content moderation necessarily, which is often outsourced anyway. Shadow banning too. Twitter still denies that they shadow ban, which like obviously is a lie. That Musk is just this wild card who, if one random asshole is like, hey, I need you to suspend so-and-so, then he's like, okay, and does it. Totally overriding everything else. There's so much chaos that it's hard to identify individual issues and it's also hard to see how they connect with each other. 
I still can't really wrap my brain around the destruction that Musk has wrought over the past month. It's truly unbelievable to me, like how many lives and livelihoods he has single-handedly upended. Like, there's been a lot of algorithms running amok because there's no one there to perform maintenance on them. <laughs> then there's also Musk's stupid ass whims. This automated algorithmic censorship that now has no end on the till. How do you expect that to sort of play out in the way the platform progresses? Yeah, you know, this makes me think Chad Loader's account got suspended maybe twice or three times over the past week. I don't know Chad personally, but I do think they're a fucking asshole based on, I guess I do know them personally, and we're in like the exact same political camp, but you know, as I've been subject to a lot of targeted dismisinformation campaigns on Twitter, Chad, I think first they implied I was a Nazi and then they accused me of being a sex trafficker because one of my stalkers slid into their DMs at some point and was like, Snow's a sex trafficker which they decided to post publicly, which I'm going over because <laughs> when their account got suspended last week, I tweeted something like, oh, what are we going to do? Who's going to accuse me of sex trafficking? <laughs> and I had someone reply to me like, well, I mean, whatever, fuck Chad, but it's not about them. It's This is about targeted surveillance and about silencing marginalized voices like has been happening to sex workers since its platform's inception, which we've been begging people to give a single shit about, to no avail, but now it's an issue. <laughs> people are going to find out the hard way that there is no single legitimate reason for accounts getting suspended. Earlier this year, we did an interview with Heather Berg about her recent book, Porn Work. And one of the things she mentioned during that interview you reiterated in a piece for Wired that you wrote this summer, which is that sex workers are the kind of canary in the coal mine for forms of policing and surveillance. And as you predicted in that piece, we could expect that users of social media will be facing to some extent the kind of treatment that sex workers have been dealing with as part of sort of platform capitalism for years. And so I wanted to ask you to make that argument. Why is it that sex workers end up being the kind of vanguard for surveillance and what do they portend? Thank you for that. There are a lot of reasons that sex workers tend to be like bellwethers for this. A lot of it just comes down to stigma. A lot of it comes down to legality. But I think that most immediately, the reason that we're an ideal test population for this shit is that no one cares. No one cares what's really going to happen to us online. And I think people usually perceive sex workers on the internet as like exclusively being like porn. I was quoted in an article yesterday in Mashable about Twitter and Elon. As you likely know, Twitter is already like a wash in porn. I, I can't even remember what I said in the article, but all the replies under Mashable's tweet were like, ew, gross, porn, no, uh-uh, not my Twitter. <laughs> I'm like, really? especially in the U.S., there's such puritanical, satanic panic revival, especially lately, has made people even more eager than they had been, which was already a lot to get us off of the internet. Also related to Sigma, people don't believe us. They think that we're dumb and lying. We're dumb lying whores. Back in, I think it was April, my DoorDash account got suspended just randomly, and I tweeted something about it, and it ended up going viral. Have you ever gone viral, by the way? Mm -hmm. 
Isn't it awful? It, yes, yes. It it's becomes, horrible. It becomes awful. Right? You know, you can kind of <laughs> sense it coming, right? Like there, there's an initial phase where it's fine. And then you know the second wave. There's like a key change. Yeah. It's always like a shower thought. And then I wander away from my phone and come back and like everything's on fire. People are dying. So I tweeted about DoorDash. I had two types of comments. A lot were from sex workers being like, oh my God, that happened to me too. And the rest were from civilians saying, oh, that's not true. And, you know, it's difficult to convince them like, I work as a tech researcher. I remember one dude replied and he was like, maybe you should talk to my wife. She's an undergraduate at UCLA. And I was like, I work there, I have a doctorate. People just don't want to believe that. They don't want to believe that the tech is smart enough. It's too dystopian and like weird for people to want to accept. The way that this done is primarily algorithmic. Not even the software engineers who are designing these algorithms half the time know what they're going to turn into. Like they, they're designed to teach themselves to be better algorithms if the algorithm is you know picking up on certain keywords or certain patterns whatever it likely isn't in most cases a conscious decision by anyone it's just this profile is high risk this profile isn't this is connected to these email addresses that have been flagged yada 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 there's no real way to prove it. There's a lot of anecdata, there's a lot of qualitative data. I mean, there's a lot of quantitative data too, but you can't look at the numbers in the same way you can a lot of other issues in tech. There's like a black box really that we can't quite penetrate. And then, you know, there's the issue with big tech in particular. There's such a culture of secrecy and just the constant threats of like NDAs and the non-disparity clauses. I've gone to Facebook and Twitter, not for like work, just cause like my friends worked there. And like the number of NDAs just to get into like the campus or into the, it's ridiculous. You know, there's such a, a level of fear that people don't want to be the whistleblowers on this. All of that combined makes sex workers a really excellent target. The legality of it, FOSTA-SESTA, that really gave kind of a green light to big tech. Open season, you want them off the platform, we want them off the platform, do whatever, it's not a problem. That kind of encouraged a lot of platforms, I'm thinking especially like Tumblr, to crack down on sex workers. Surveillance of sex workers has been happening for a way longer time than I think anyone realizes. Our bank accounts have been getting shut down for decades, way before any of us were on social, way before social media really existed. PayPal has been targeting sex workers since the early 2000s, which of course they deny. We should probably say at this point that uh, Elon Musk was an early investor and executive of PayPal, which has been accused of deplat not only deplatforming sex workers and porn workers, but confiscating their funds on its way to becoming the premier digital payment processor. Was stealing from sex workers imperative to keep the company afloat in the early 2000s? Uh, sex workers definitely think so. Of course, PayPal is a lot more believable than, say, some random dominatrix <laughs> wondering where all her money went. So, you know, there's already a lot of this kind of infrastructure in place that just gets built upon further. You don't really need to start from scratch. One of the things that you mentioned in the piece from this summer, the Canary in the Coal Mine alluded to earlier, 
is this conflation of human trafficking, sex trafficking with sex work, Yes, which seems to be part of a larger sort of propagandistic conflation of LGBTQ identity and particularly trans identity with pedophilia and grooming, right? Mm -hmm. There is willful right-wing confusion about actual criminal uh, sex trafficking and sex work, which is disproportionately done by marginalized classes. I do wonder to what extent Twitter is going to become a platform for dignifying, rationalizing, normalizing those conflations. And as you said in your piece, th those conflations are already getting encoded into law. This conflation between sex work and sex trafficking is going to become a model for other forms of sort of propagandistic confusion of terms. Yeah, it already has. And also I think it's worth noting that as far as the sex work human trafficking conflation goes, that's not just on the right. It's also very heavy on the left, the left. You know, I'm thinking of back when FOSTA-SESTA was passing, there were open letters signed by like Meryl Streep, Ashley Judd, and Amy Schumer, like some of the names that like I can remember off the top of my head. It's not difficult to make the slippage, I think. It's a topic that is difficult to address with any nuance because the second you try to, you get like, oh, so you're okay with kids being trafficked? No. Sex workers historically have been some of the most vocal against trafficking, especially considering how often it is trafficking victims later become sex workers. It begs a, quite a larger question about your kind of profile. At, at what point did your interest in sex work and the plight of sex workers and the sort of legal status of sex workers intersect with your interest in internet culture? At what point did you realize that those two things, were they always synonymous or did you at some point sort of see those things sort of coming together in a way that was fruitful? I have always been very concerned with doxing. And I've since gotten much more lax about it because I've been docked so many motherfucking times. I'm like, fuck it, who cares? Let's go back to 2007. Sitting in my apartment in college and I get a phone call from my dad. And he and I pretty much only talk if he's drunk dialing me or there's a death in the family. And he's like, have you Googled your name recently? And I was like, no, why? And he's like, yeah, why don't you do that? So I Googled it and not much came up. It was like three pages. Um, he's like, go to the last page. And I'm like, okay. I recognize pretty much everything so far. And then I get to one I hadn't seen before. I remember it said before and after, number 18. But I was like, yeah, click on that. And I'm like, okay. So I clicked on it and there's a picture of a woman who kind of looks like me. She has the same like deadpan kind of disgusted glare. So I'm like, oh, okay. like. And he's like, no, 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 keep scrolling. And I'm like, okay. There's a picture of the same woman masturbating right under that. And then under that, someone had typed in the comment section, is this Olivia Snow? And Google had picked it up so that when you Googled my name, that was, you know, one of the first images that would show up. And this was, you know, so long ago too, that like I, I didn't really have much of an <laughs> online profile. Really since then, I've been hyper aware of surveillance, I guess, just in general. And also that it's not about like, you know, remember the panic of like, oh, if you put a picture of yourself with a beer on Facebook, then you'll never be president. Like right when social media really started to take off. It's not necessarily or it's rarely what you yourself are uploading. 
but it's other people's behaviors that you can't control which leads me back to sex work <laughs> uh in that you know the way that we navigate the world is inherently kind of open to be exploited something you said to me before we started recording was that although you have been a target of harassment and doxing and that your twitter account has been sometimes used against you you still believe that twitter has done more good for you and has been more useful has been a better tool for you it has had more positive consequences maybe than negative consequences right that the cost benefit analysis still yeah comes down on keeping your twitter account and using twitter and i said what good has twitter done and what do we lose if in fact the platform either disappears or descends into a kind of truth social version of it? I mean, Twitter has more or less made my career at this point. After my idiot former mentor left my other career in tatters, Twitter has it kind of levels out social stratification and puts you in contact with folks that you would not have met otherwise removes a lot of barriers. It's also like I've moved into freelance writing. I don't know anywhere else where one could get so many sources or, you know, reach out to editors or whatever. It really is a network that's just so expansive that, you know, it's not weird that a dominatrix would be following a full professor or would be followed by a New York Times editor or like local politicians and sh like, uh, that's just how the platform works. It is like a public square, really. A digital public square or you know even when i was in grad school i remember i got more reading recommendations just by scrolling my feed than i did from talking to my advisor I learned about theorists i wouldn't have learned about i learned perspectives i wouldn't have even considered even since then i've found a field that i enjoy working in more than than my previous one that i wouldn't have and, you know that's not something you can replicate on instagram or facebook or linkedin or like at all that is really unique to twitter and i don't think that can at all be underplayed or overstated or do those mean the same no they don't whatever <laughs> also thinking of like black lives matter a lot of actually not even a lot of, I think pretty much all of the major events over the past 10 years that have really built into this political movement of resistance have happened on Twitter because that is where you're able to share so rapidly, like on the ground details. Also the mutual aid opportunities on Twitter. I'm not an organizer as like, you know, I don't like work at a nonprofit or, or whatever, but I've probably raised easily $50,000 over the past two years, just in like mutual aid funds. And that's not something that could happen on any other platform. Sliding into DMs of professors I know who are on hiring committees and being like, hey, should I even bother applying here? <laughs> are you guys gonna consider my application as snow or should I not waste my time? And like getting a straight answer um, that isn't, you know, subject to getting FOIA'd. <laughs> um, of course it is subject to getting leaked now that Musk is here, but you know, I think that would be an incalculable loss. And I say that like last year, medieval Twitter doxed me at my grandfather's funeral. And I still didn't leave Twitter, <laughs> like, because it's been so incredibly important, I guess, to not only just to, like, do ac academic work, like, fuck academic work, but to, like, you know, be a citizen. That was Olivia Snow. 
For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash bollocks. We'll be back next week with the finale of our Social Problems series, featuring Rebecca Colesworthy and Jeff Jarvis. Until then, here's Squirt Guy. I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.